Welcome. This is Lawyer Up. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here with my law partner, Jack Derora, and today we are talking with Shannon Harden, president of the Columbus City Council. Welcome, Shannon. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It is 2020, so that always comes with a caveat, but uh, big picture, we're doing all right. That's good to hear. Uh, could we just start with a little bit of background for our listeners? Uh, tell us um, how you became um, a city council uh, president in a um, big Midwestern city like Columbus. Sure. Well, I was born and raised here in uh, Columbus, Ohio. I went to Columbus City Schools. Um, and in high school, uh, the uh, I went to Columbus Alternative High School. They had an internship requirement. The internship requirement was once a week, you'd have to go to a place and, and spend the entire day. Uh, and I chose uh, the Mayor's Action Center. The Mayor's Action Center was is the precursor to what we now use or call the 311 Call Center. Uh, now it's, I think, 30 or 40 folks uh, who uh, really run a, a, a phone and data operation center. Back in the day, uh, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, it was, uh, I say, three little white ladies in the basement of a building uh, in uh, a corner of downtown. Um, but that's where I fell in love with city government. Uh, one of the ladies, her name is Mary Funk. She's no longer with us. She really um, uh, gave me the bug. And the bug really is not for politics or, or even uh, policy. It's for uh, constituent services. Uh, the, the ability to have someone somewhere in Columbus call in to a, a line like that. Um, and you be there, you be the representative of city government, um, and they call you and they're just really upset, and they're upset because, say, the uh, garbage skipped their house. And, and, and what I always found interesting was folks weren't calling to really get something done. They were more so calling to wager their, uh, their anger and, and just fr- – not anger, frustration. And they just had to get off their chest that, again, this city, this bureaucracy, this thing screwed me one, one more time. And I and what I fell in love with was the ability to um, click over, call the refuse department, say, "Hey, would you go back out to so and so address?" Um, and then click back over and let them know that in the next four hours a, a truck would would be coming to get their trash. And just for a few moments uh, in the moment, but maybe in a in a more profound way, change their their view or their interaction with their local government. And that's what I fell in love with uh, in terms of of of, uh, of elected office, city government, local level, um, was was that ability to, to be uh, granular and on the ground with constituent services is still what, what keeps me in it. So I did that for several several years um, uh, throughout high school, um, came back from college, still working in, in the city doing that type of work. Um, uh, and uh, the mayor uh, and 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 I and my mom did work for city government. My mom was the front desk clerk uh, at city hall all, all throughout uh, uh, her her career, and so had the the proximity to 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 people downtown. And so the mayor had seen me, and he said, "When you graduate from from Morehouse, uh, I'll have a job for you." Well, that was in two thousand nine, in the middle of the Great Recession, and uh, I thought he was just blowing smoke, but he gave me a call after graduation, and. Uh, Thus started my career, and that was uh, a little over 10 years ago uh, when I came to work for Coleman in his office. I worked for him for five years, <clears throat> a, little, a little over five years, um, making my way all the way up to uh, director of his community outreach. And uh, uh, one day he said, you know, I think that it's time for you to, to – that you've hit your ceiling here. 
uh, you should run for office. And I said, no, mayor, I'm too too liberal for this city. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I'm too young. I was like 26. And he's like, I know that you're young. And I'm like, mayor, no, I'm too liberal for this city. Uh, I'm young and I'm black. And he's like, all right, Shannon, now you lost me. I know that you're black, bro. Um, and, I, and I said, well, mayor, I'm young, I'm black, and I'm gay. And he and, and and that was the first time I had really talked about it professionally. And he said, well, one, that's only an issue if it's an issue for you. But secondly, that's exactly why you must run and must run now, uh, because the city is more progressive than ever. It's more uh, diverse than ever. And the city has to see itself in its representation um, and in its representatives. And um, uh, that's when I made the decision that probably I, 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 I could do the elected side or I would want to. Um, and that was uh, six years ago. I put my hat, hat in the ring for his open seat on council. They say they say throw your hat in not to get it the first time, just to show folks that you're interested. I accidentally got it the first time. Um, and uh, and so I, I've been on council since 2014. In 2017, my colleagues um, uh, voted to elect me council president. And at that time, I became the youngest council president in our city's history. And that has been three years. Uh, and this has been... Um, um, a, a very um, it's an amazing time to be in leadership and it was before it was amazing before 2020 um, because there was so much there is so much promise about this city um, there, this is an amazing time uh, I always say that we're living in the city not that not because of anything I've done or any of us have done in the last five or six years uh, to really build a city takes 15 to 20 years. So we're living in a city that leaders 20 years ago built. And if we understand the trajectory of our city, which is that we're going to add 500,000 to a million people to our community over the next 15 to 20 years, truthfully, I'm leading not for this moment right now, but I'm leading for the next 15 to 20 years. And so everything that we do um, will um, qualify us for what kind of quality of life our children will have uh, in this big city that, that will be over the next 20 years. So, um, And then 2020 happened. And, uh, and and this has been the most challenging time, not just for leaders, um, but for all of us. And, uh, and so I look I, I um, that's how I got here. Uh, and and I, like I said, I really do believe it's a blessing to be in leadership right now. But but we are definitely living through and I'm helping to lead through some very challenging times. Shannon, how often um, do you run for election and does the um, city of Columbus, do you elect by ward or do you elect um, over the entire geographical area? Yeah, we are an at-large system. So uh, every four years, there's a municipal election. Um, half the council goes up one four-year cycle, the other half goes up the next four years, and they, they overlap each other. So uh, every two years, we have council seats up. Um, I'm up next year. And it's a really interesting election. As folks may know, uh, several years ago, we took to the ballot um, uh, a, a, a reform package to city government. Uh, and uh, that uh, reform starts in 2023. So this next election that I'm going to run for in 2021 is not a full four-year term. It's for two, for two years. Um, and then everybody will have to come back in 23. Um, the mayor... Um, the the seven council members plus two new seats, so nine council, and all run in 2023 for uh, to start our new um, by uh, by place council, which means that uh, council members will have to live in different districts to create geographic diversity, uh, but they will still be voted on at large, so that we are still voting as a Columbus community for our, our elected officials. Shannon, I got another question before I let Jack sure. get one in here. <laughs> Uh, 
being in leadership, can you tell our listeners about um, what your involvement in is with regard to the COVID-19 response, either for the city mm-hmm. or if you're working with, um, you know, state leaders? Certainly. So, you know, we're, we're still under an emergency decree if, if folks um, don't know, might not realize it, but um, and the emergency decree uh, that, that the city is under gives the mayor extraordinary powers um, to um, make uh, curfews, to uh, spend resources, um, and to to get those to get the and, and then explain how he spent those resources during an emergency. Uh, and so we're still in a crisis uh, because we were in that emergency that emergency uh, posture, and especially in February, March, and April, it meant the mayor and I had to work much closer together um um and and it maybe it was just fortuitous that we started that and not that we weren't close before not that we didn't talk every week or so but the necessity for us to talk daily and sometimes several times daily to 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 make sure the two sides of city government um had were sharing the appropriate information was critical um, we were able to push money out the door quickly. We were able to change our rules, allow us to uh, meet uh, uh, to meet um, uh, virtually. We we uh, uh, postured in a way um, to identify what our our city's top priority was, and and a lot of this was early on in the in the pandemic. Um, and, and our posture was any dollars that we have this year, uh, our two priorities were food and shelter. Um, it, it, it got down to that granular, and everything else uh, fell fell to the background uh, outside of the emergency response. That was obviously was was the the the, the first priority, and then uh, keeping food and shelter on, on in our residents um, uh, for our residents was our our priorities. Um, we we're still at it. Council just last week or two weeks ago had to rescind a part of our um, restaurant closures at ten o'clock. Um, and not because we don't think that restaurants should still and liquor sales should end at 10 o'clock because we saw a spread happening, uh, but because of a ruling um, that, that came down um, in, in, uh, in district court here, uh, it, it, it limited what the city could do. Now, luckily, the governor has been another great partner with us. Uh, on this stuff, and so when we had to, when it, when ours became, when our silly city, when our city. Um, um, uh, uh, change was 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 uh, held in the courts. The governor just stepped in and used by a different means imposed the same same thing. So we we um, have been working very closely with the state. We follow the the advice of our health director um, very closely, and uh, and and likewise, she's in daily conversation with uh, the governor and, and the health department. We're here to talk about Black Lives Matter and racial issues. Yeah. So let's get to it. Yeah. What does, or the, the term Black Lives Matter seems to mean different things to different people, and probably the diverse thoughts are attributable to white people. What's it mean to you? Um, I, I, Black Lives Matter to me, it's, it's interesting. I think that we all allowed ourselves to let, it, let the term become perverse like two years ago or when it first came out. And we allowed ourselves as a country, as a community, as a city, and, and as political leaders to um, to volley around if it was okay to even say. Mm-hmm. 
And, um, you know, looking back on that period of time where where we all allowed that conversation to happen, to realize how offensive that is to 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 any life, really, to that, that you can't say uh, affirmatively um, that your life or that other folks who have have um, red blood flowing through their veins, that their life matters um, for me in granular and uh, in more profound ways. Black Lives Mattering means that my six, uh, six-year-old, or now he just turned seven-year-old two weeks ago, nephew, that his life matters. Um, that, you know, uh, he's the thing, uh, and I'm married, and I have a mom, and I have brothers and sisters, but my nephew is the person, thing, entity that I love most in the world. Uh, he is the reason why... Um, I'm in elected office. He's the reason why I put I I, I think elected office in a city of 900,000 um, persons is worth it because I want this city to be worthy of my nephew, who is a cute chocolate seven year old skinny boy right now. But in, you know, in seven years is going to be six, three. Um, he's going to uh, maybe wear a sweater, a hoodie and sweatpants. And even though his uncle is the second highest ranking person in elected office in the city, folks won't see that nor care. They're going to see his black skin, um, his young black male skin. Uh, I, I believe he's going to be very tall, his young, tall black male skin. Um, and I think it's my responsibility and my belief about Black Lives Mattering that I have to make sure that this city is prepared and worthy of of him, um, that they see him as an asset, not a liability, that they see him that as that all of their hopes and dreams about who we are as a community and who we can be are in my nephew Christian. Um, and we're not there yet. And that's why affirmatively we have to say um, Black Lives Matter. So for me, Black Lives Matter means that my nephew's life matters. And it doesn't just matter to me, but it matters to to the entire community. We hear a lot about, we hear the term a lot, systemic racism. I've got my own definition of what that means. Tell me what you think it means and how we got here. Systemic racism is just that uh, through, I'm reading a book called Cast by Isabel uh, Wilkerson. I would highly recommend anyone who is interested in this conversation on race to uh, to read it, Isabel Rick- Wilkerson um, argues that um, structural racism is like uh, folks who own an old house. And I own, happen to own an old house, a 130-year-old house on Long Street. Um, structural racism, like this country uh, and like that old house, uh, its foundation was built a long time ago. Uh, I, My husband and I live in that house. We didn't build the house, but we have to deal with the cracks in its foundations. Those cracks were put in there, some in, some for on purpose, some uh, j- just by happenstance of when it was built. But nonetheless, um, the, the, the issues of that old, when that old house was built affects us to this day. It creaks, it moves. If we don't uh, ex- examine it and if we don't uh, identify and if we don't own up and realize that uh, there are cracks in the foundation, um, then it will will 
uh, uh, it will come back and cost us uh, in our in our in our in in our old house. Um, she goes further to say that um, when it rains, people who have old houses um, are scared to open the basement door to go down to see if the water came in. But we know the water came in regardless if we go down there or not. And it is my thought that. Um, in in May, what we saw, what happened in uh, in uh, Minneapolis, mm-hmm. and came across our, our country was the water coming in our basement, and which meant that we had to go down in our basement and uh, examine um, uh, the destruction, where, where, how, where where we were, how we got there, and the cracks in our original foundation. Structural racism is everywhere. It's a, it's built into who we are and who who we are as a nation. Um, it's not something that we should run away from. It's something that we should identify, that we should root out, um, and and that we should change if we want to stay in this old, beautiful house. Shannon, how does the um, term or the concept of white privilege uh, relate to what you're talking about with systemic racism? You know, I think... White white privilege is, is 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 obviously real, and it is um, it's it's it is uh, I think a part of the stru- structural racism in that um, because this thing is all around us uh, in everything that we eat and breathe and and live. Um, if you were not a part of the oppressed, it would seem normal. Not even just normal, but um, uh, balanced. And and so the white privilege is 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 we shouldn't um, we shouldn't knock someone for you cannot be knocked for having white privilege you can be knocked for not uh, identifying that you have or, or not doing the work of um, uh, uh, of uh, rooting out what that means to you and how and what that means to other folks around you. Well, that brings up a question, which is. A lot of times people define the world by their own narrow experience. So people might say, look, I don't see racism in my neighborhood. I don't see it at work. Therefore, it doesn't exist. How do you communicate with those people about the problem? Well, you can (laughs) – I think about – so at my desk – and I don't get to see my desk very often anymore um, since we are working from home. But I keep a 1936 redlining map um, and I keep it on my desk uh, as a reminder for other folks who come in to talk to me about policy. Um, but more so even for myself to remind me that there are there were structural uh, laws put in place. And this is why this is how it catches up to today. So that that 1936 redlining map of Columbus um identifies the community where uh, it was damn near impossible to get any lending to to communities. They, they The federal government specifically came into Columbus and said these neighborhoods, because of their rates of African-Americans, cannot get X, Y, and Z, small business loans, um, home ownership loans. Th- this, is, this is the plight of this neighborhood. Well, in my line of business today, uh, we use what are called heat maps. Uh, heat maps uh, show the preponderance of certain things happening in a certain area. So there is a heat map uh, that will light up red on in a certain part of town uh, as you talk about um, uh, infant mortality or, or um, food deserts or violent crime or uh, hypertension or now COVID. 
uh, and you can and, and the heat map shows that the lighter the the darker the red, the higher preponderance of that whatever the 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 the, the data pieces that we're studying. You can overlay almost to a hundred percent the current heat maps on top of the 1936 redlining maps and see that these very specific areas are the same areas that today have those higher uh, relationship to all of those indicators. And so so for me, when we're talking about racism, no, you didn't do that yesterday. But the effects of racism are being felt and benefited, benefiting some today and uh, afflicting others today. Uh, just as, just as, as if it was enacted, you know, in current time. And so, no, you don't have to be um, uh, actively doing things that are racist to to have the positive effects of some of our forefathers' um, racist policies. And so, you know, and, and we what we have to do is take out some of the sting of I'm not calling you necessarily racist. But we are living in a society that was built on racist policies uh, and some are benefiting from it and some are not. And uh, I think my job is to close my eyes and see who's benefiting or not and try to just rectify the 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 cause, the root causes of it. And and that's what we do. That's what we try to do at, at council is, is um, be as intentional about our policies going forward and their effects on folks as our forefathers were uh, in, in taking us down different paths. When I think of this concept of white privilege, to me, as a white man, I think it makes it difficult for white people to understand or recognize systemic racism. And, and I make a distinction. I mean, we all can point out racism. Uh, if we see it, we're going to know but thinking about it being a systemic uh, issue built into society, I think it's more difficult for white people to recognize it because, as you were saying, Shannon, whether we admit it or not, a lot of us or most of us probably have um, benefited from it uh, over time. Um, so, you know, until white people start to recognize it, um, you know, I fear that it, it's going to continue to be a, a, a problem for us all. I, I would agree with that. I mean, we we have to do the, the harder work. And so, you know, I'm a young black man and I'm married to a, a white man. And and I tell him today and he's he's not from Columbus. He's from um, Defiance, Ohio. Uh, the we all have a role to play in this. And I, I tell Ben, you don't have to be woke here in Columbus. You need to be woke when you go back up to Defiance. Uh, and, and you can be woke when you go to the lake. Um, spaces that are, 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 you know, that I can't go and, 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 and share a message. And so the, the, when, when I think about my, my white allies and our white friends, um, you know, the conversations, there, there are still rooms that you can go in and, and move a move a message much farther than someone else. Um, and that, that has nothing to do with what you post online. That has nothing to do even truthfully with who you vote for. It's your ability to influence folks uh, in your sphere. And 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 I am I am hopeful. But I question if our friends and our allies are really carrying those messages 
back to the places where um, uh, people that look like me aren't are not. It's a it's a big important issue. I um, and I don't know, Jack, if you know this, but I was going to Columbus uh, public schools when they were uh, when uh, they were desegregated back in the seventies, and I went to Beechcroft High School, and um, we, uh, you know, the, the the demographics changed overnight. And all of a sudden you had a lot of white kids that uh, had seen or had very few friends or interactions with black kids were now going uh, to class with them and sitting next to them and uh, to my benefit, playing sports with them. And uh, that was an eye opener to me because uh, the one thing I remember distinctly now thinking was, boy, they're about as afraid of this as I am. And at the end of it, we just got along because, you know, that's just the way life is. Uh, you know, we had no say in it. And when we realized that we were all in it together and we we're all pretty much the same people from a Midwestern town, uh, it, it actually was a pretty wonderful experience uh, all in all. So um, uh, I agree, Shannon, that, you know, uh, we got to both races got to keep working at it. But I think the young people are really turning this around for all of us in a very, very positive way. Yeah, I was laughing. I was thinking, I'm, I don't know if you're, if our parents felt the same way, that it was that easy or that it was that spectacular of an experience. But it was it's always the young people. I, I met yesterday with a group of OSU students and we were having this conversation. And, and truthfully, you know, my message to them is that we're 400 years into this mess. And, you know, you putting the, the, the weight of 400 years of structural racism on your shoulders and, and saying that I have to change it tomorrow is not fair. I say, well, what would you know, what do you have that, that our ancestors who uh, who uh, pushed through the civil rights movement have like they didn't get it done overnight, but they made, made huge gains what do you have that that the folks who pushed us through and, and got you know emancipation and won our, our freedom from slavery what do you we don't what we have is what we what we are our ability but all of those movements are usually led by young people um they use that energy um and they and they're not afraid to to hold us account to push forward and to dream bigger than even how we're able to dream at this point and um that's how that's why I know we're going to we're OK and we are going to continue to move this this um, arch in the right direction. It won't go at nearly fast enough. It won't go nearly fast enough. And we will have moments like we're living through right now where it causes if it's moving at all or if it's moving in the opposite direction. That is part of history. Um, it's part of our history. Um, but I I, I am. Um, confident that we are that we are we are um my my most famous alumnus from morehouse college dr martin luther king said that and don't want to be cheesy but that the uh moral arc of the universe is long but it always always bends towards justice um we're bending we're bending folks hey i want i, I want to change the contour of the conversation yeah. just a little and it, this was actually one of the first questions i wanted to ask you and it's about that photo of you and Joyce Beatty and Kevin Boyce being shot in the face with tear gas. I thought it was a jaw dropper of a photo. I'd like you to tell us about your reaction, not just physically, but emotionally. You're shot in the face with pepper spray by your own police department. (laughs) What's going on there? 
So I never considered myself one that was uh, going to be out in the streets. I thought that my, my role was really around the table and trying to figure out issues and be the conciliatory one. It, it, it was really um, a, apparent uh, in that second, third day. And I think by the time Joyce and I went out on that Saturday, there was, had already been two full nights of, of protesting. Uh, and the stories that I was getting from our police department about the type of folks that were out there and what was going on. Um, and also, I mean, I'm on my own social media, so I'm also seeing and hearing from my friends in the activist community who were out there. And they were just so divergent of stories um, that that Joyce, Kevin, and I are just like, well, why don't we just go down there? And, and at the very least, our, our job was to tell people to peacefully protest. Right. Like, if, they, if, if folks were so emotionally bent that they were they were being not, they weren't they were being violent or so it, one it was at 10 a.m in the morning so we were like this is not going to be the this is not going to be the crazy part but we can still go down there and tell them to calm down you know let's all let's do this together is what peaceful way to protest so we, we go down um and um right away the first thing that strikes me is well hell these aren't like activists activists these are like people from clintonville <laughs> like these are these are, are white folks and black folks like um palace saw a lot of pastors I, my attorney my doctor was down there um i was shocked by like well, who it actually was um and, and yes there were and it was very mixed there were black folks out there a lot of black folks out there and it was almost like a um a celebratory experience mm-hmm. it was pretty cool there you know uh the group was so large they were walking around the state house um Joyce and I we just and Kevin we just stopped at the corner of of Broughton High and because the group was themselves were marching we could stay still and they would all march by us so we were able to engage and it was we were there for an hour and it was a great experience um the crowd continued to grow so about 10, 45, 11 o'clock, the crowd was to a point where even if they wanted to, they could not stay on the sidewalk. It was it was spilling out in two. Um, and there was a group of police officers that rode by and uh, we identified ourselves and they were they were great guys. Um, uh, and um, they were telling people to stay on the sidewalk. So uh, right away, I knew that them being out there a, a bit triggering, but these folks were in shorts and, and t-shirts. So they, and police officers, they had their gun and stuff, but they were in shorts and t-shirts. Um, so we said, well, we'll walk with them with the police officers and just tell folks to, Hey, stay on the sidewalk, stay on the sidewalk. And so, so we did that for, for 15, 20 minutes with these officers and everything was fine. They kept on going. Um, we saw across the street that another group was starting to come out to the, the sidewalk. And so Joyce, Kevin and I went over there and started doing the same thing. Um, Without us really even knowing, a new group of police officers showed up, and these folks were not dressed in shorts and t-shirts. They were fully fitted uh, with uh, right. with their riot gear. Um, and within 30, 45 seconds of them showing up, the picture that you saw happened. Um, and... Um, you know, it, it, it is what it, that, that, that it, it, it was what, what it was in terms of that, that happening. I knew enough about what had just happened to say to Joyce, we need to get on on. I think I posted we, we did a video and posted on my social media 10 minutes afterwards. As soon as I literally could see 
um, to let people know we were okay because it be- it became a huge shuffle. Just this, it, even that the. the 200 people that saw it in person we were just worried that we wanted people to know that it was that we were okay and uh you know i made a few calls on my way home um to my family uh because i thought they would see it on social media to the mayor to let him know we we just saw um and um and then I so that was at ten eleven o'clock. I got home maybe eleven thirty. At two o'clock, I had a um my my nephew who I talk about, Christian. He graduated from kindergarten that day, and it was in person. It was outdoors, and he goes to an all black um uh it's it's a private school. All, all it's called Mansion Day School. Um, by two o'clock, it it had left social media and gotten to real real. It was on TV and and such and um. I don't know if I was, uh, just, I just wasn't all the way aware, but that's when I first started interacting with black folks who had seen the video. And um, a lady came up to me at the school and said, I'm terrified now. She said, I was angry before when the protest went with George Floyd. Now I'm terrified um, because if they can do that to you mm-hmm. and to Joyce and to Kevin, our three highest ranking African-Americans in our city, then what the hell will they do to me? Mm-hmm. And that got to me in a very deep way because I I, I would never want to scare folks. And, and it was already the most tense of moments. And the last thing that I would have wanted to do was to frighten people who are already hurt and scared. Um, and thus started really when I was really committing myself to the, to the reform that we had to step out and step out in a real way. We had to say what we saw. Um, and um, acknowledge exactly what was going on. Um, and I I thank God that I did go because I had to see it for myself. Um, and if I didn't go, then we would have had issues um, because, you know, elected officials are trained, especially at the local level. How do you talk about police-involved incidences? You are trained to be very vague, be very cautious, be very slow in your response because anything that you say Mm -hmm. about a police-involved case can be held against you, uh, against the city or so going forward. So we have always been trained by the city, you know, by our attorneys and and to be – and that the videos are inconclusive always. Mm -hmm. They're, they're, They're only showing one part. Well, I didn't need a video. I was there. I saw what what happened, and and our police officers were shockingly aggressive at ten o'clock in the morning. Now there are experience. There are excuses, you know, and, and that some that I, I take. We we know. I know that we were overworking our those police officers. Um, they were working sixteen, eighteen hour jobs. My my cousin. Uh, as a police officer who was out there that day, she had called me already to tell me that she was taking incoming. And she was purple and blue from taking um, frozen Molotov. I, I saw that with my own eyes, her stomach. And so I do know that there was more, there was stuff out there. But a police officer showing up to a nonviolent event and um, using that level of, of, of force was violent and aggressive. And there was no if, and, or but. And um, I'm glad that I was there so that I could say it that clearly because my, my concern big picture that weekend was 
that we would lose the confidence of the governed. We have to remember that, you know, this whole structure of government depends on the governed consenting. And we were already, by June 1st or May 30th, around that time, whatever date that was, three months into a, a worldwide pandemic that had stretched people's trust and belief and in, in, in confidence in government. Then you had the, the outbreak and you're, you have a segment of the community, especially the black community, who had already had decades of mistrust or lack of trust in a portion of the government, the police. And then you layer that with a newfound um, awakening by a lot of our white brothers and sisters about that such thing. I was really scared and nervous and concerned those that that week or so about the about the whole kit and caboodle falling down. So I'm curious. I'm I'm sort of curious now about not sort of. I'm really curious about how this affects your viewpoint now that we're entering into negotiations with a new police contract that I think ends in December. December It sounds to me like whatever viewpoint you may have had eight months ago probably changed. Talk to me about that. It's not the viewpoint change. It's how you talk about it. All right. So let's talk about that. Yeah. It's, it's you know, again, I, I, I believe that you, you are cautious. You, you keep a level of uh, decorum so that you can um, fix it at the table. Um, that, you know, there's, there is trust there that we can articulate and that we can move the ball, uh, you know, incrementally. That was not working. And um, it wasn't getting us where we needed to go. And and so um, what, what has changed is the posture in which we move forward the reforms that we all know are necessary. That's why, you know, within weeks of um, the protests, council moved forward the most aggressive police reform agenda that the city has seen in decades. And we did it in four weeks. Uh, we essentially banned no-knock warrants. We uh, set up hate group affiliation background checks for all of our police officers. We changed the oath that the police officers take. We um, uh, cre- identify what were what we believe were um, over-militarized tools and weaponry that the police department used and banned them. And then we sent to the voters the Civilian Review Board and independent oversight for voters to, to use. What we have to still do is bring people into the negotiation. If folks knew what was in the FOP contract and how stacked it is against uh, every, against the the city, um, it would it would continue to unify us in saying, "All right, this is this is enough." Um, and so we we have this opportunity uh, to vote for issue two. It doesn't it it sets up the structure and codifies the money uh, in our constitution, city's constitution, in perpetuity. But we still got to go to the negotiation and negotiate the fine pieces of it. I do believe by having that that pass that it does change the conversation with the FOP. They they know that this is uh, that the world is watching, and these conversations are happening all around the country. Uh, I don't think we let up. I and I and really where I think we go from here, truthfully is we have to identify what we want when we say, when we think about safety. We did a good job in the summer of, of um, telling folks what we don't want 
of of identifying that what's not working. But the truth is, I believe that the policing in general is built on built on a, a racist structure, a racist premise. It, it, policing comes out of uh, um, uh, you know the the, the slave movement and, and tracking down, down slaves. Uh, certainly not our police officers aren't racist, but the institution, as in all institutions, in all structures, we talk about structural racism, is there. So what we, I believe what we have to do is reduce the the friction, the interactions, and change how folks interact with police officers and how, and how they, and how many times they interact with police officers. We have to identify alternative crisis responses I think about my uh, a neighbor who uh, 86 years old and has dementia. Uh, she's fighting with her grandson. The only real option that I have right now is to call 911 mm-hmm. and have a police right come out. We should be able to think about another option and, and really start to work about setting up that system where maybe we have some folks from NetCare come out instead who don't have, who are maybe are not triggering. And by triggering, I mean to a person who is dealing with uh, mental health issues, that 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 gun and that badge, and it's a triggering effect. That I think that we have to really start to lean into what we want next and how we imagine what public safety is, and go about that work. I like that term, referring to public safety as the umbrella for the type of services that the police provide, or one service the police should be providing. The, we shouldn't be thinking about our safety in terms of only policing. I think you just said it better than I was trying to articulate it. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, that's not. We should not be thinking about our safety in just in terms of police. But we, lo- but police will play a role. I go to. It's funny when I my 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 in laws are are uh, old school Republicans, and uh, um, I it we went to the to their house and. It was the first thing that came up. Well, so what do you mean you're gonna you're gonna you're you're do you support defunding the police and you who's gonna cut and I don't support defunding the police. I didn't say that I don't. But um, she was. They were very quick to well, who's gonna come to our house at three o'clock in the morning and somebody's breaking in? And I'm like, well, hell, I hope a police officer. But every instance, you know, l- let's look at our call re- records. You know, uh, <clears throat> a majority of our calls are not for violent crimes. They're for mental health. They're for uh, homeless. They're, they're for these other incidents that don't need a, a armed police officer or may not need an armed police officer to to respond. I think that we're grown up. I think we're mature enough to have that conversation, to respect the role that police officers will play, to respect the role of law enforcement, but to understand that policing does not alone does not make us safe. Shannon, I've represented a number of um, small villages and cities, and uh, when we have a, a, an issue with the police and, and the citizen, it seems to me, at least my experience is, if you back up three or four steps, you can pretty much figure out when the decision was made, that if it had been made different, the interaction would have been different. You know, I always think about that, that it goes right to your point that uh, it doesn't always take a badge and a gun to, uh, you know, to uh, handle a situation that's out there. Sometimes it just takes, um, you know, somebody coming out and and listening and 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 being there. But um, I am happy to hear the way that you look at these things. I think that we need more people like you in city government. I uh, think your diversity and your background. Uh, 
serves Columbus well, and I thank you for your willingness to serve in leadership. And I say this with all sincerity, uh, being a Republican, that I hope you have aspirations for higher office. And um, I would certainly support you um, in, in your endeavors in that regard. So thanks again for coming and spending some time with us. Well, well, I, I appreciate you, and, I, and um, I, I'm really excited about this city and about our future and uh, the work that we have. We we will get through these times. This is the most challenging year um, that any of us will probably have, have lived through and will live through for a while. Um, but it makes me still hopeful and optimistic. If any city can use the challenges that we have uh, gone through um, and use them for good and how we build that next city for, again, all of this is about the next 25 years and, and how we add that nearly million more people to our city and not just not just maintain the quality of life of our city, but improve the quality of life for our residents uh, as we grow. Uh, I think that that's the challenge and the opportunity that we have ahead of us. And um, and that's that's not a partisan thing. And that's not a black and white thing. And that's that's not that has nothing to do with your sexual orientation. We just all want to live in a city that is good and that is fair um, and that treats each other kindly. And, and I think that we are we're, we're well on our way. Amen. I want to thank you also for joining us, Shannon. And please know I enjoyed the candid conversation. We'll be back in a few weeks. The next topic or the next guest is Matt Hobash, CEO of the Mid-Ohio Food Bank. We're going to be talking about food scarcity and poverty right here in central Ohio. Until then, remember to lawyer up. So long.